You're listening to episode 150 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Vicky Maitland. No Steph this week because she is enjoying a birthday holiday. But we have a Vicky instead. How are you, Vicky? I'm very well, thank you. A big happy birthday to Steph. As this episode goes out, it is the 11th of June 2021 here in Norwich. And we just heard this week that Thomas McMullen, the author of The Last Good Man, which we talked about and had Thomas on the podcast a few months back, has just won the Betty Trask Prize, which is for the best first novel for a writer under 35, which is very exciting news. Congratulations, Thomas. Well, I like it when people win awards after being on the podcast because I feel like we somehow contributed towards that. Yes, yeah, it feels like we've had a role in some way in the trajectory of their career. Exactly. How has work been in the learning and participation department, Vicky? You've been in the office a little bit and also in your garden. I have mostly been in my garden, which has been very lovely. Norwich has had some glorious sunshine over the past couple of weeks, which has meant I have been able to sit and rotate around my table so I even out the sunburn. Um, But otherwise, learning and participation world has been busy as schools are starting to open back up and we're able to have more conversations with them. So that's been very exciting. Yeah, it's been a weird time because even after schools went back after the first lockdown, obviously the ability to have people in, tutors from, you know, outside from people like us, it's been really hard because they didn't really want extra people going into school who didn't need to be there. No, exactly. And also we've been really aware that even if schools have wanted that and have been able to do that, uh, we've got a real commitment to keeping our tutors safe. And so we wouldn't want to, say, pop them in one school on a Monday, a different school on a Wednesday and another school on a Friday. So, yeah, we've been taking things very slow and steady um, as have schools. As with the Norfolk and Norwich Festival a couple of weeks ago, it's lovely to see the kind of gradual, gradual slow return to, if not exactly normality, kind of at least a greater variety of experiences. So let's talk about the show today, Vicky. I'm very, very excited. I was about to say, I saw a tweet from you, I think, a week ago, which teased, trailered your excitement for this week's (laughs) podcast. Yes. So we have the writer J. Michael Straczynski on the show today. And Joe has been involved in all sorts of things throughout his career, um, from television to comics to his own novels and much more besides. You may have encountered his work in the 90s in the show Babylon 5. This was how I first found out about him. This was kind of a, a pivotal science fiction show back in the 90s that essentially paved the way for the way television tells stories these days in terms of having those kind of long-running stories that go across multiple seasons. That was not something that existed really before that show. Uh, And it was kind of the first time I started paying attention to story structure and that kind of thing. At the time, Straczynski was very present on Usenet and news groups, which was a thing back then, which no longer exists, sharing lots of tips and behind the scenes about how the show was being put together. And this was, you know, before even making of documentaries on DVDs. So it was this amazing kind of sudden opening of the door into how television gets made. He's also written lots of stuff for Marvel, wrote for Thor and Spider-Man in the 2000s in particular. He, he worked on the screenplay for the Thor movie as well. So it's kind of all these touch points, these pop cultural moments that he's been involved with in, in various ways. He worked with the Wachowskis on Sense8 for Netflix. And I remember discovering 
that he actually worked on cartoons that I watched in the 80s when I was a kid, like He-Man and She-Ra. So there's this kind of slightly bizarre thread that runs through my entire life of me encountering his work. Hence me being very excited. And then you finally got to interview him. Yes, exactly. I I couldn't quite believe it when we managed to get this interview sorted. And the reason this happened is because he's written a new book called Becoming a Writer, Staying a Writer, which is is very much in our wheelhouse. So this is a more practical guide to, to becoming a writer and then crucially, like how to stick around and keep doing it rather than, you know, getting that first book or that first script sale and then kind of not really going anywhere from there. So it's very much a kind of long-term view of the, the various publishing industries and and how to kind of get a foothold and then keep it there. And obviously he's in a particularly good position to do that because he's been working consistently across multiple industries since the 80s. That sounds like a book that almost every writer needs in their life. Uh, regardless, I think, of probably what stage of your career you're at, unless you are, in fact, at his stage of your <laughs> career where you've already done it all. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting as well, because although it has you know, lots of practical, useful tips in it, it's as much a kind of philosophical look at what being a writer means and and why we bother to be writers when you know it is quite difficult uh, and success is not guaranteed, but it's it makes the case for why it's important and and why writers kind of can't be anything else because it is such an an important part of their identity. So let's uh, let's get straight into it. This is me talking with Joe Michael Straczynski a few weeks back. Well, hello, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Happy to be here. If my calculations are right, is it about three a.m. your time? Uh, it is two minutes shy of that, so two fifty-eight a.m. Yeah, I had to double check with your publicist to make sure there wasn't some kind of time zone mix up. Is is this a, a typical time for you to be up and about? Yeah, I tend to um, write from about maybe eight or nine o'clock in the evening through till about three or four a.m. my time uh, because the phone doesn't ring and no one bothers me. And they've done studies that show that the uh, the human brain actually works differently after midnight than it does during the daylight hours. In fact, uh, what happens is that the the brain becomes more open to new ideas and more suggestible, which is why you tend to see commercials for Snuggies after midnight, because after midnight, you might think, you know, I could use one of those, where you might not think that at noon. Uh, So I work until about four o'clock and then have an hour to just sort of detox and then get up eight hours later, spend a few hours trying to find my face. Sadly, I always find it. Sadly, it's always the same face. I keep waiting for Tom Cruise's face to show up. It never arrives. Uh, and I edit the work from the day before, um, load up on coffee and do meetings. And then by about eight o'clock, the engine turns on in my head and I start flying. Right, this is presumably why when other people, are, including myself, are trying to get to sleep at night, that's when all those ideas start popping into your head and you're, you're trying to sleep while it's simultaneously going over everything in your brain. And you've kind of just surrendered to that, I guess. Yeah, to a degree, although when I do crash, very often what, what writers do during the, is that during the day they make connections between things. That's how stories are born. And when you go to bed at night, that process doesn't end. It just turns inward. And I call that moment when the circus comes to town. Uh, so it's just a matter of just trying to survive that and force yourself to go to sleep and 
pick it up the next day. Well, I've wanted to get you on the podcast since we started making it, essentially, but it was always a question of of what it could be about because, you know, we could do an entire podcast just on your TV work or just on your comics, and it feels like we'd barely scratched the surface of either in an hour. Or my dancing skills. Yes, exactly. Maybe a follow-up we could do on that. I think so. Great. I'll get that scheduled in. But yeah, when I saw you tweet about uh, becoming a writer, staying a writer, it, it suddenly made a lot of sense because that's kind of what this podcast is all about. And it kind of gave me the perfect excuse to talk to you about a new project you're working on, but also kind of explore some of the stuff you've done in the past. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading the new book and it struck me how it's not your kind of, not your typical how-to book. You know, you've got the useful practical craft tips in there but it seemed to be a lot about I mean I guess the title is is very precise because it is about how to be a writer and what it means to be a writer was that always kind of the intention that it you know you'd have the nuts and bolts craft stuff in there but you'd also have that kind of more philosophical approach to you know what does it mean to be a writer well I think there is a, a sense of very often the writer is something foreign to our everyday experience uh, how does one become a writer? And there, there's a, often a resistance from one's family members and even from one's own self to think, could I actually be one of those things? And there's a line in the Bible that says, a, um, a prophet is without honor only in his own land among his own people, meaning those who know you have a hard time accepting that you might be extraordinary. Whereas a stranger you meet might be much more open to that idea. And we ourselves and our families are often hard put to accept us as being potential writers. So it's about seeing it as not something ivory tower or, or strange, but as a job of work and a craft and an art, no different than being a sculptor or a painter. And the things you have to learn to overcome the initial years of struggle, because so many times writers, and artists of any stripe, but writers in particular, find their years wasted early on by being exploited or through uncertainty or through bad information. And it takes years just to unlearn all that bad stuff. So I wanted to give them the information they needed to get their career in motion. And then on the other side of the book, to take writers who have had some moderate success or starting to make inroads into the profession and give them the information they need to reinvent themselves, to uh, have long-lasting careers, uh, which mostly involves stepping outside your comfort zone. Uh, I think I mentioned the book. When I first came to L.A., uh, there were a number of writers that I knew, it was almost a dozen, really, uh, who were like the, the, the big deals of that time, in, in our inner circle, at least. Uh, they worked in you know, live action or animation or books, or whatever. And when I sold my first script, they like patted me on the head. Well, that's very cute. Don't bother us. Um, but what happened over time is that gradually, one by one, they kind of fell by the wayside because they kind of decided early on that this is the kind of writer that I am. These are the kind of stories that I tell. These are the forms that I work in, and they weren't willing to go beyond that. And that's, that's fine if, if the, the, the world wants that, but if the world changes or matures or has a different interest in, in what's going on in the world, 
and you don't change with it, you got a problem. And I would say to them over the over those years, you know, go outside the genre. If you write novels, write TV, write TV, write novels. If you are known for doing science fiction, do fantasy, do horror, do mainstream. And they wouldn't budge. Uh, they were just terrified of stepping outside the box. And as a result, they, you know, they lived in a box and they died in a box. That's what boxes are for. And within 10 years, it wasn't one of them still writing, at least not selling anything. And it's so important when you've been doing the writing thing for a while to keep constantly challenging yourself and testing yourself and going into areas you don't think you can succeed in because that's where the the craft lives. That's where the art lives is in putting yourself on the high wire. And that's what I think I want to really enforce in the book that you must have as a beginning writer and as an experienced writer, multiple genres, multiple venues, and always be willing to risk in order to get what you want to get. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much teaching, particularly for writers who are getting started, you know, the focus is very much on that first project, you know, finish that first novel or sell that first script. And this book takes that long-term view. And I think even for people who are right at the start, it's really valuable to, you know, start thinking about, you know, what what am I going to be doing 20 years from now? <laughs> what What kind of thing can I write? Is it just this one book that's in me or do I want to be doing this longer term? And that's the problem. They think of it as I have a book or a story to tell and they write it and then they're done. But the problem is you by writing only one thing. You only learn the lessons that one thing has to teach you. You only acquire the tools that one thing has to give you. It's like if you went into shop class tomorrow for woodshop and you made a napkin holder, would you think I'm now primed and ready to make Notre Dame? <laughs> you, you start with the small things, you learn those lessons, you apply them to the next thing you build, and it's a career. It's not a one-off. And, and there's so often that emphasis on the thing, on that one story. Uh, I've known uh, nascent writers who worked on one book for 10 years and never finished it. And they don't understand that, no, you, uh, 10 years on that one book, all you learned was those lessons. And they also have to overcome the academic aspects as well, which seems to be more along the lines of teaching you how you should write and how you should sound rather than encouraging writers to find their own voices. Because if you're trying to meet someone's expectations of what writing is supposed to be, you're never going to get there because writing is just speaking on the page in your own natural voice. Uh, the more you know writers, the more you realize that they, they write the way they talk and talk the way they write. I spend so much time uh, when I go on convention appearances and so on, trying to get writers to unle unlearn those bad habits. So there's there's a, a, a huge monumental problem in getting not just the first work done, but just understanding that that is just the first work. It is not the totality of it and getting them to go beyond that. Yeah, and those two aspects, you know, both finding your own voice and you know maybe moving beyond the the kind of the same stuff that everyone's taught and you're know, doing it your own way, but also taking those risks and jumping, you know, into different genres and trying different things. And I mean, your career, you've done that so many times from, uh, you know, TV to movies, to comics, 
to novels. Um, that's why you're kind of in the perfect position to have written this book. But to do those two things requires a certain level of confidence. And I think a lot of our listeners, you know, especially people who are you know right at the start, maybe haven't finished that first project yet. Um, that's something that is difficult and a struggle at the start. And is that confidence something that you've always had, or is it something that developed with experience over time? Certainly, I was stubborn coming into this. I had the same doubts as anyone else. I was very fortunate to have a couple of teachers early on believe in me. But there's this whole question of, you know, are are writers born or are they made? And I think that to a certain extent, you can take anyone and teach them how to write better. You can take anyone and give them the basic structure of a story to understand how it goes from you know, introduction to the rising action and complication, then you have all those tools. But that's different from a need to write. Uh, Stephen King once said, you know, you, you don't write for the money because if you do, you're a monkey. You don't write for the fame because if you do, you're a monkey. You don't even write because you love writing because you're still a monkey. You write because to not write is suicide. And that's kind of where I landed early on. I, I, I always knew I was going to be a writer and had determined that I would <clears throat> make it or crash and burn and die in the process. So I'm not sure it was confidence as much as terror <laughs> driving me forward. That <laughs> I have to do this because if I don't do this, I mean, if the universe said tomorrow I can't write anymore, there'd be a puff of purple smoke and I'd just disappear like a Warner Brothers cartoon, you know, like the Wiley Coyote just gone. Um, and for a lot of younger writers, the, the confidence issue was even more complicated because of what I call the tyranny of reasonable voices. Um, we are all surrounded <clears throat> by those who love us and don't want to see us get hurt. And the biggest hurt in certainly American culture and others as well is to fail worse still to fail in public. So they try and, and soft wall you and four wall you with concern saying, well, maybe you should not put all your, your eggs in one, you know, bastard as others have said, um, have a plan B or don't get too invested in this or be sure to get a regular job and don't worry about the writing thing. Do the writing thing on the side uh, because they're on the one hand afraid you're going to fail and they want to, safeguard you from that, which again is understandable. But there's also the the parallel aspect of this, which is that very often these people had the opportunity in their lives to become more than they thought they could be, who had dreams and ambitions and desires of their own. No, no one graduates high school thinking, oh good, I'm going to work at Walmart. You know? We all believe that we're going to do great things. And inch by inch, those dreams get sanded down. That process starts when we're kids, when, you know, some adult says, you know, don't do that. You're embarrassing yourself. Let a grown up do that. Or, you know, inch by inch, the world sands down our ambitions and and we unlearn our passions. And if we were to succeed in following our dreams, it calls into question later on those who did not. So you may have family members and friends who had the opportunity to be more than they thought they were going to be, did not take those moments and are to a degree threatened 
by the possibility of your success. So between those who are loving and those who are afraid of having to confront their own failures or their own decisions not to try, the two sides come together <clears throat> to say, eh, maybe you should be doing something else. And that winnows away your confidence. I mean, you look to your parents, to your friends, your family to support you. And, and, and if they have doubts about you, that just reinforces your own doubts. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's a good thing that my parents were absolute crap, um, just horrible human beings. And I never listened to anything they ever said about anything because they were always wrong. Um, that I didn't have that concern going into it. Uh, for me, it's, it was just always a matter of I have to do this. And most writers, I think, are like that. And the real, honest to God, no kidding around, born writers. That's why I've always said that you you, you cannot discourage um, someone who really is meant to be a writer. They'll just come back at you stronger. I think that if you have the, the potential to stop someone from pursuing this craft who really isn't dedicated to it, you should try because maybe that person wasn't meant to do it. But if you that person is meant to it, you're not going to stop them. You, at most, you will annoy them, and they'll, they will come back even stronger to prove that you were wrong. They are a writer. They are an artist. But, yeah, the, the, the confidence thing is such a huge obstacle in the beginning to overcome. Yeah, I uh, very specifically remember being at school and the, the supposed you know, so-called career advice uh talks that you'd have where you know i was very much like oh, i want to I want to be a novelist or i, I want to write, write screenplays and, and the immediate response would always be well how about you try this instead and it was that kind of how about you do this practical thing which maybe lets you write some words but is absolutely not the creative outlet that you just mentioned exactly and and, and as far as trying different medium uh, media or different forms the worst that can happen is you'll fail so what you know it's like you, they can't kill you for that they can't eat you they can't put you in writer prison why not try it when i was for a while i was a peer counselor at san diego state university uh and i had a person come in who just enrolled and she was in her late 50s i believe and we were talking about the academic program and she said my only concern is you know it'll take me at least four years to get a bachelor's and i'll be 61 years old by then I said, well, how old will we be in four years if you don't do it? 61. You may as well roll the dice and take the chance. Because uh, if you don't, you will always regret it. You don't want to look back at your life at age 80 as a catalog of missed opportunities. You know, you mentioned uh, your experiences when you were younger and that notion of looking back at your life. And you wrote an autobiography, Becoming Superman, recently as well. And I actually kind of felt reading Becoming a Writer that it's almost it almost feels like a companion piece with becoming Superman at times, you know, they're doing different things, but when you take them together, it's this, this is kind of uh, affirming celebration of writers and being a writer and you know, anyone, any writers who are in that position where they're kind of like, Oh, why am I doing this? And, and having that kind of confidence crisis, I think as, as two books, they're, they're a good way of kind of boosting yourself and reminding, reminding you why you're writing in the first place. Thank you. And you're dead right. And the lesson that's in becoming Superman is that it's possible. It doesn't have to be a guarantee, but only that it's possible. The point that is made in, in, in the bio for all of human history to broaden our conversation for a moment, um, no one had ever run a four minute mile. Then 
uh, I believe in the late 50s, um, an Australian runner for the first time broke the four-minute mile. And within several months, three or four others broke the four-minute mile. It wasn't that they were training any different. They weren't suddenly stronger or faster than they were. They just realized that what they thought was impossible the day before is actually possible. And knowing that it was possible, they went and did it. And my point in, in, in really both books, you're right, I think they are kind of companions in a respect, is that, look, I am, I am bereft of social skills. I am not the most handsome guy on the planet. I am a, a, a barely competent speaker. I am, I am a nerd. Uh, I, I lack all the social graces. I'm not a, a networker. I'm not a glad hander. I, I'm terrible at pitching. And if I can do this, anyone with, that, with the talent behind it can do it. And it's possible. That's that's my my gospel. Is that there's no guarantees, but the point is, yes, it is possible to make it as a writer. And there are things you can do to increase your chances, and these are these are some ways to do that. Here's what I went through, and here's what you can expect in the future. But if if this matters to you, go for it. You talk uh, in becoming a writer about the importance of helping the next person up the ladder, especially if you've had you know any form of success yourself and. You know, aside from it just being a nice thing to do and the right thing to do, you know, why why is that so important to you? Because that's been a kind of thread running through your career for a long time. Well, there are a number of writers who I either aspired to be and learned from or who took an active interest in me. Um, I've always tried to live an ethical life. Uh, and I, again, I believe that you do have to give back to the next generation. Certainly people gave to me in terms of information and training and and. Uh, support Norman Corwin, great writer who I learned from, teachers I learned from. Um, but I'm also very much aware that there are a lot of techniques that I know how to do that I learned from people who are no longer with us. I mean, Norman Corwin, um, who was a very famous radio dramatist in the 40s and became a mentor to me in, when I was in college and thereafter, could do things with the English language that I still can't figure out. <laughs> it was just, it was phenomenal looking at his writing and, and trying to peer under the hood. It's like looking through the, the bars of a cage at a beauty that I will never be able to attain. But that being said, I learned some of the techniques that he had perfected 40 years ago that aren't being used by others. And other techniques from other writers that I've absorbed over time that I realize really are not that common out there anymore. They've been kind of forgotten. And I'm not going to be around forever. I would love to be able to pass on what I've learned so that those techniques and those ideas and those strategies and those creative outlets persist. Because I would hate for the cool stuff that I know to end when I do. Then that kind of diminishes what I was here to do, that was to create art and to ensure that my techniques and, and, and my approach to that art in some way survive. That's why you see actors creating actors studios and passing on what they know. There's a big emphasis in, in the acting community um, for uh, actor studios that have been around for 50 years or more, um, teaching certain methods, method acting is an, is an example of that, that was that were perfected many years ago and they're still being taught today. And there aren't a lot of writer-oriented things that do that, that, that take, you know, the Meisner method or method acting, 
and the writer version of that to teach upcoming people. There's a lot of books that sort of do ex post facto analysis of a book structure and say, well, this is a, this must be how you write it, but not always in the best way of, of doing that. So it's it's combination of just being ethical, wanting to give back, and wanting to make sure that those techniques that I know don't don't leave town with me. Yeah, I first encountered your work in the mid '90s with Babylon Five. Um, I was, I think, thirteen when that started airing, which feels a very long time ago. Um, I feel old suddenly. Yeah, that was also it. Kind of coincided with the internet becoming a more accessible thing and you know that spirit of sharing information and, and knowledge and insight that you're you're talking about uh, you did that a lot on news groups back then which you know back then were were i suppose in some ways ways now social media uh, sort of um but that was absolutely not not the norm you know that's not there weren't many showrunners or writers kind of divulging that amount of behind the scenes information and i guess from your point of view that was probably one of the first times you were able to directly connect with viewers in that way yeah and and uh <clears throat> what i wanted to do is I, I yeah i come from the background of being a fan that's that's my that's my history and i was always frustrated as a fan by not seeing the kind of shows that i wanted to experience and the reason i started that conversation was twofold one i'm cranky and i always been online and i don't want to change that because i was always a showrunner but also I wanted to create a living document. I said, here is how a TV show gets made. Here are the creative decisions. Here are the creative compromises. Here are the problems that come up. Because the more you can understand why the system works the way it works, the better the odds are that you can then ask for and have the language to ask for the kind of shows that you want to see. And in the course of that five-year-plus conversation, and now you know, many years later, uh, there was something like I posted like seventy thousand messages or some astounding figure um, that are now archived in a searchable database and have been used in term papers and theses and articles about television production. Because um, it's important to have, I think, an educated viewership, an educated population that understands how these things happen. There's so much you know, mythology out there about how television gets made, how movies get made, that having a counteractive force seems to be on you're working on the side of the angels yeah and that predated even you know dvds i think came along sort of five years later or so and that's when the, the culture of having behind the scenes material became slightly more commonplace but certainly yeah mid 90s that was it was not information that was easily found otherwise it was certainly for me i think because of my age but also because of the way you were sharing that information is when I started as a, as a young writer to start paying more attention to you know, story structure and character development and serialization as a t technique generally. Um, and, you know, watching the show was this double, double-sided thing where on the one hand, I, I was just enjoying it as a piece of entertainment. And then on the other hand, it was kind of turning over all these ideas in my head about how you were putting it together at the same time. Yeah, there was no one else back then really doing it. In fact, I even had um, some executives of Warner Brothers come to me and say, why are you going online with these people? They're mean. <laughs> <laughs> some of them are crazy. Yeah, yeah some are, but the fan comes from the word fanatic. Um, but 90% across the board were charming and funny and insightful. 10% were batshit crazy. 
Um, but that's that's true of, of any collection of people. It's interesting what you're saying about you know no one else is doing that, but also nobody was really telling stories on television in quite that way back then either. And I remember David Simon talking about The Wire, uh, which was off what, what ten years later at least, um, but how they had to kind of upskill the audience almost to kind of see what they were up to with that show. And in terms of that, you know, your, your background of kind of teaching and sharing information, it feels almost like that show was teaching audiences a new way to watch TV as well. Well, certainly before Babylon 5, particularly science fiction, but mainly in pretty much all television, there was no such thing as a five-year arc. No one had ever spoken those words before. There were, there were character arcs you would see popping up here and there and that would care from season to season, but they weren't building toward a precise end and they weren't structured like a novel. I picked the five-year arc because it parallels the structure of a novel, you know, introduction, rising action, complication, climax, and then you walk. Um, and we were kind of creating a new language as we were doing it. I remember that Warner's, when I first told them I wanted to do a five-year arc, they just could not understand it. They, they were well, you mean like a lot of two-parters? No, no, no. I mean, you set something up in season one that you pay off in season four. And that was a time <clears throat> when they thought that audiences didn't have the um, facility, the critical facility, to follow a story for four years, uh, let alone you know recognize a payoff that far down the road. And it was a, it was a struggle. No, no one thought it could be done, but we proved inch by inch and explaining inch by inch how it could be done. We did it. And once we had done it, I know that um, talking to um, – Folks over at Lost that um, they sort of looked at our actually I got a call from from Damon Littleoff looking at the, the process of the arc. Like, how can we sort of borrow that for our show Lost? Um, uh, Battlestar Galactica also looked at what we had done, and I got the pilot script early on to read to give any advice about creating a five year arc. They went and did it, and then all of a sudden it became a thing, and now it's hard to find a show that is not built around a multi-season arc. You go into any network, not a pitch a show, and they all want to know, okay, what's the third season? What, you know, and they never used to ask that question. Uh, funnily enough, I had a um, meeting at a, a cable network that I will not name with a guy who didn't quite, I think, know who I was. And I was pitching this fiber arc that I wanted to do. And he said, uh, you know, we have writers coming in here all the time saying they want to do a five-year arc and none of them can pull it off. What makes you think you can do it? <laughs> I invented the mofo. All right. <laughs> it's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, excellent. Um, and I mean, you, you even see it in, in movies now, you know, the stuff Marvel are doing feels very much like it's, it's taken a leaf out of what TV was doing and has just applied it on a, on a massive scale to these kind of 10 year plus uh, sort of sagas that they're, putting out, which of course you also had a hand in at the start of that as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew Kevin Feige and worked with Kevin before he was in charge of the whole Marvel cinematic universe, but he was working for um, Avi Arad. And at that time, Marvel was just licensing out characters really wasn't doing its own movies. And we talked for on off a lot over a period of a number of years about if he ever got his hands on the Marvel cinematic universe, which it was, but that name came along later, of course, how would you build it? How would you construct it? How would it all come together? And um, a lot of what we had in those conversations ended up informing what we're seeing today. 
Um, that being said, I, you know, it, it's, it's all down to Kevin. Kevin is a, is a mastermind of this stuff. He's really pulled it together in, in an astonishing way. But those early conversations um, really laid the foundation for what we see today. I, I'm desperately trying to resist my temptation to go down a, a, a Babylon 5 comics rabbit hole here. So to get us back to becoming a writer, something I noted is that uh, there's a big gap between that and your previous kind of uh, craft book, I suppose, which was your scriptwriting book that came out in the 80s. And why, why such a big gap between the two of them? I didn't think that I'd learned enough or that I knew enough. Um, I dumped into the first book kind of everything that I knew and then spent the next X number of years learning more stuff. But I thought, do I have enough to either update that book or do a new book? Uh, not yet. I need, I need to know more. If I'm going to ask someone to spend X number of dollars to buy a book about writing, I want to make sure they get their money's worth and not something that's recycled or doesn't have new information. And I finally reached a point where I thought, okay, I now have enough training and knowledge and experience that I can justify to myself writing this book. Uh, I didn't feel, feel like I had that before. So why now? You know, what 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 changed to make this the right moment to to put becoming a writer together? Having had the years of experience working <clears throat> in movies as well as TV, and just as I mentioned, this cognizant of getting older. I mean, I, I, I could wait another three or four years to do it. But at that age, that, that window of time, I think my main concern on a daily basis will be trying to figure out who stole my pudding. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm staring down the, the barrel at, at uh, uh, an age that frightens me. But therefore, you know, it's important to get it out while I'm still, while, before I hit non-compass mentis, you know. So uh, it was like, get it out now or lose, lose the opportunity. Well, that's something you addressed directly in the book as well about how, you know, as a writer, as, as you uh, progress in your career and in your life to try and avoid kind of standing still or getting stuck in an, a nostalgic past of, of where you were 30 years prior in your career. So, yeah, like staying fresh seems to be something that you really strive for. Yeah, I, I, I joke sometimes that, you know, looking at myself in the mirror, the starship's taken some damage, but the captain is still 25. Um, and I, I, I've stayed fresh. I've stayed very liberal. I'm massively liberal. Um, and as a result, I do things that you would not necessarily associate with me. I mean, if you, you would not look at me and think sensate. And you wouldn't look at sensate and think me. Uh, the novel that I'm is coming out uh, in July, uh, July 6th from Simon & Schuster. Uh, all the characters, but one, are in their 20s. It's millennial-based. It's Gen Z-based. Uh, and everyone who has read that book, who was in that group uh, at the editorial and elsewhere, has come to me and said, how did you know? <laughs> how did, how, this is how we think. And said, but we realized you don't talk like everybody else in your group you don't think like everyone else you you think like us you talk like us um and that has served me well and it, it's it's odd like those i i think like i don't look like and those i look like i don't think like <laughs> so it's just, I, i'm like a man without a demographic 
slightly out of time <laughs> at all times. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, what, what's your trick there? You know, is it kind of just osmosis that you you, you absorb <laughs> modern culture and that kind of thing? You know, how do you make sure that you you, you stay kind of connected to to where the world is now? I think you have to keep constantly questioning yourself. You have to be open to new ideas, open to new music, uh, new cultures, um, to diversity. Uh, <clears throat> if there's nothing on your playlist that's earlier than the last 10 years, you've got a problem. If you don't know what a playlist is, you have an even bigger problem. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I, I listen to house, dance, trance, electro swing, which I happen to love, EDM. Um, and I would mention any of those to my peers, and they would look at me the way a cat looks at a doorknob. You know, they know it, they know it does something, but they're not quite sure how to dial into it. Um, and I think they just... Well, a lot of writers, a fair number of writers or people in, in my age group come to a conclusion that they figured it out. This is how the world works. This is how things are. Uh, and the moment you figure that out, you start to die. Creatively, intellectually, you start to close up and fossilize. Um, and I've never stopped questioning. I question myself, question the world around me. And I am very optimistic about millennials and Gen Z. I think that they are going to be <clears throat> the ones that change the world for one fundamental reason above all else. They're coming into this world at a time when the linkage between university and jobs, that road has been broken and shattered. Coming out of college saddled with debt into a world that is riddled with climate change inheriting a, a smoking cinder at the end of it. They put experience ahead of owning stuff because they can't freaking afford to buy anything. Those who have preceded them have sucked out so much of the world that there isn't that much left to lose. Che Guevara said that every country is three meals shorter revolution, which plays in two ways. One, if you are convinced you will have three meals and you, you'll, you'll play along because you don't want to lose what you have. But if you don't have those things necessarily, and, and if your future is uncertain, and you have left less to lose, then why not stand up? You have nothing else to, to sacrifice. And they're just smart, overeducated, um, idealistic. They believe that success is fine, but it has to be ethical in nature. And I, I am convinced down to my socks that they are going to be the ones to figure it out and get it right. And that's why I, I, I stand with them and not with my own peer group, which annoys people around me quite a lot. Yeah, which is interesting because, yeah, that's definitely most you know, people kind of compartmentalized into little into their most familiar tribe, as, uh, particularly as they you know get older and, and become more comfortable with thoughts they've had in the past and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's so valuable, particularly if you're a writer and a creator trying to do stuff that is still relevant. Yeah, my, in my neighborhood, <clears throat> it's all like accountants and business people and lawyers, and I don't get along with any of them. I don't talk to them. I don't deal with them. I live by myself, and I'm like, I'm like the neighborhood weird guy. And... Uh, I didn't know how much I was that because I'm always keeping weird hours. I'm the only artist in the group. Across the street from, from me, there's this house, and they're all 
very much, they fossilized. They have shut off. They have, again, stopped growing and stopped questioning the world. And they live in this bubble. And I was looking at my mail one day, and one of the little um, yappy dogs across the street made a run for it. And frankly, I would too if I was him. And the woman chases the dog out into the street and almost to me picks up the dog, turns around and, I, and says to the dog, quote, I told you before, stay out of the street and away from the strange man. <laughs> I was never prouder. <laughs> I just I just don't fit in with with the lawyers and the, and the accountants and the business managers. Yeah. Even the dogs are being warned away from you. Yes. Um, in, in terms of those challenges that, yeah, that you mentioned and the fact that the, you know, the, the younger generations have little to lose now, but in becoming a writer, you know, you don't, we've talked a lot about how it's, you know, affirming and it, it gives you a reason to be a writer and reminds, you know, when you're reading it, it reminds you of why you're doing it in the first place. But equally, you don't shy away from the harder aspects of, of, of being a writer and, and some of the kind of reality checks you put in there, you know, things like, you point out that you can't become a showrunner on a TV show with your first script, <laughs> that kind of thing. How did you strike that balance of uh, realism and pointing out that you know it's hard, but equally not discouraging people? Well, part of pointing out that it's hard and what is, is and is not possible is all about funneling their energies into productive areas. All writers have to work with are as time, energy, and visceral material. And you can't afford to waste any of those. And if you early in your career decide, I'm going to write the pilot and the Bible and the first five episodes of a TV series, never having sold anything on television at all, the two years you take to do that are going to be wasted because no one's going to want to read it because it's not just about buying a script. It's about hiring a producer who knows how to run a show. And it just, it doesn't happen. So it's a matter of saying, look, don't, don't spin your wheels. Here are ways you can get into television. There's a way you, you can make it happen. So it, it, there is hope. The Writers Guild every year adds, you know, a couple hundred members to its roster, which means that they had their very first sales. It does happen. But you have to understand what will work and what will not work in terms of what the market will buy. And so for me, it was, it was a balance of it's hard work. There's problems. There's ways you can, you know, hurt yourself by going down unproductive ro roads, as I did early on. But it is still possible if you just take the following steps. You have a, a chapter dedicated to writer's block, uh, in which we're very clear about it not being a real thing. Um, and, you know, we, we have a little online community of writers full of lovely people kind of supporting each other and sharing tips. But, you know, writer's block is something that does come up a lot, um, especially for, for newer writers. And I guess for you, it's rarely even been an option because you're working to production deadlines and publication deadlines. So you, know, you, you can't just uh, say that the muse isn't in and, and not deliver the material. But is it something you struggled with when you were younger or beginning? Or has it always been something you've, you've you know, dismissed? I don't dismiss it. I just say it doesn't exist. When people say there's writer's block. There is no a block in your brain anywhere. So people say, I had a nervous breakdown. Show me on the, the chart. Uh, do a CAT scan. Show me which nerves broke down. You can't because they're not there. What happens <clears throat> a nervous breakdown is you get too many emotions to deal with 
in a logical fashion and you begin to short circuit like Robbie the robot. You, you, there is too much input, not enough organization. What people tend to believe is writer's block is actually part of the natural process of writing. As I mentioned, every time you write something new, you learn that lesson that that story had to teach you and you pick up more tools for your toolbox. And let's say you've written 10 stories. First one was crap. Second one, mostly crap. Third, eh. By the time you get to number 10, you've now acquired enough tools to look back and see the problems you had in the first batch of stories. And you kind of have the tools to fix that, but you're frustrated because you don't know how to get to the next level. You, you can see the problems, but you can't always figure out, okay, therefore I'm going to go over here. Writing is not, it, it's, a, it's a series of plateaus and you're going along at a slight angle and you hit what you think is a wall. What all really is is a step up and, and you get there by just, you keep on writing and you write your way up to the next step and you keep on going. It's, you're just processing the, the, the tools and the data you received from doing all that work. Um, that's part of it. The other part is performance anxiety. The other part is very often writers fail to finish things and they say it's writer's block, but the problem really is that while they're in the process of writing it, they can't be judged. It's a work in progress. I'm sorry, but you know, it is what it is. And they're terrified of finishing because if they finish it and they send it out and it's, and it's terrible, that calls into question their identity, that calls into question their career goals, even though one, one rejection is just one rejection. But therefore, they, oh, no, I got writer's block. I can't finish it, I have writer's block. No, you're scared. You're scared. Or they're, they're, or they're perfectionists. They want things to be done absolutely right, not understanding that there is no such thing as right. There is only authentic. Writing, as I've said a million times, is nothing more than talking on the page in your own natural voice. And if you start trying to pretty it up, I talked to one person recently who was trying to be a writer and said she writes it all the way through, then goes back and takes and puts in all much more important sounding words than when, the one she was using. Because that made it writing to her, but by putting in important sounding words and big fancy words. No, it, it's, you say it in your own voice. All you really have as a writer to offer is your perspective. Everything you've ever seen and done and experienced has formed a lens in the middle of your forehead that no one else has. And no one else sees the world the way that you do. You there may be the other problem that Block is thinking, well, it's all been said before. How can I ever add to that? Well, yeah, everything's been said before, but not from your point of view. When I, when I chased Neil Gaiman for five years to write Babylon 5 for me, it was because I wanted to see how my show looked from his perspective. That's all you're hiring. When you hire a writer, you're hiring their perspective, their point of view. That's all you have to offer is your point of view. Um, so for me, it's, it's a matter of, of, of making them understand that, that what they have to say has value on its own terms. They don't have to pretty it up. And don't worry about being perfect. Perfect is the enemy of good. So all of those, I come from a, degree, a background of a degree in clinical psychology that, that helps. All those elements have nothing to do with writer's block. They have to do with, with tension, with stress, with, with ego issues. 
um, with frustration with the writing process. It, it just it takes time to get from A to B. Um, but you're not blocked. You're not blocked. That's and the moment you, you decide you're blocked, then you're blocked because you're now have got your brain wired up to think I can't go any further. I'm stuck. And if you think you're stuck, you're stuck. Yeah, you've mentioned failure a couple of times in in our conversation, um, and it's, you know, particularly how you know culturally the the idea of failing in public is is you know, certainly like you said in the US, but in the UK as well. You know, that's something that is to be avoided at all costs. Um, when actually with creative processes, failure is is part of it. You know, you were saying about those ten stories you're writing. You know, the tenth one is going to have learned from the previous nine and so getting past that concern about something not working is is critical yeah but the, the good thing is it's inevitable I, I i challenge anyone on the planet to write 10 short stories and not have story number 10 be at least incrementally better than number one it's simply not possible you will have learned things along the way that will make number 10 better than one so there is progress you just have to keep with it and, and stop being afraid of, of failure. It took me a long time to get my first sales because I, I, I just kept missing the boat, if you will. But that's why you just have to believe in yourself and, and keep trying. Eventually, you'll get there. Like I mentioned earlier, Babylon 5 was kind of my entry point to your work. But um, that's only because I, at the time, didn't realize what you'd been up to in the 80s. And I, I realized much later that I'd actually been watching the real Ghostbusters and He-Man and She-Ra as a as a, a very young kid without having any notion of the fact that there were actual humans behind making those things um and it's this curious thing where at every point in my life you've been writing something and because you know you've, you've talked about the importance of taking risks and trying different things um and it's quite unusual uh to have been able to follow a writer through so many different phases i mean you mentioned neil gaiman you know he, he's probably another candidate who has you know worked in so many different areas so you get to see see him his output from so many different perspectives as well but i just think because because your career has has gone through so many of those different phases you kind of approach so many different audiences in that way your work will undoubtedly have been the catalyst for a lot of people who subsequently have become writers you know who have uh, watched or read your material from a young age and have moved into doing their own writing. And is that something you're kind of consciously aware of? Is is, is that something you, you consider? I do hear it quite a lot. Because, um, you know, going back to the earliest work in animation and, 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 and like, you know, like things like He-Man and Shura, kids were probably, you know, eight, nine, ten, watching those shows, um, 11, 12, 13, watching Ghostbusters, 14, 15, 16, looking at um, Babylon 5, um, and then onward into the comics work and into Sensate and on and on. And I hear people very often say, I, I, I grew up reading or watching or seeing your stuff. And my, my reflective in, in, in reaction is, hey, I'm not that old, okay? Come on. Um, <laughs> but then I realized, no, actually, you are that old. Um, but I've had... So many people over the years said that they they learned to write or they decided to become writers by exposing by being exposed to all my work over the years and the, the talk about the work. I um, whenever there's a writers guild strike and I'm out pounding the pavement with everybody else, invariably somebody will come over to me and, and 
saying, listen, I, I sold my first script by virtue of having read your writing book or studied your scripts. Um, when I worked with the Wachowskis on Sensate and other projects before that, what I found out was that when they had been working as carpenters earlier on, they used to read my Writer's Digest column on writing. And they would like, like memorize them practically. And they read the script writing book. And they attributed those columns to a lot of what they learned about how to write. And that's one reason why they sought me out, plus they were Spider-Man fans. So I, I do hear quite a lot from people that there was a point of inspiration from the work. And that's, that's the best way to do it because, like I said, on a personal scale, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not terribly inspiring. I'm pretty much, you know, whatever the opposite of inspiring is, I'm, that's what I am. I'm, I'm less than meets the eye. But if the work, if the work is getting through, if the stories are getting through, um, if the point of the stories is getting through, then, then I'm a happy guy. And I've always tried to write ultimately about hope and about beauty and about diversity and the idea that we are better together than we are apart. I've always fought hard for diversity, for stories that were optimistic. And the thing of it is, science fiction is the only truly inherently optimistic genre there is. It says there will be a tomorrow. It may not be the best of all possible tomorrows, you know, um, but the cockroaches don't inherit the planet. We keep going. We go on. And that optimism that I felt as a kid reading science fiction is what I try and bring into the situation now. And, and I hear writers say that they, they've, they've tried to be more optimistic in their writing coming out of growing up on my stuff. And that's so important, particularly now coming out of this global pandemic, a time of pretty substantial darkness. Um, I think there's an even greater emphasis now on or need now for stories that are optimistic about being cloying or cliche or, or sugary. Um, that says that, you know, there, there, there's, there's gemstones amid the gravel that there, that we as a species, the human race, we're better than we think and nobler than we know. There are those who profit from trying to convince us that we are base and mean and one group is better than some other group and horrific things of that nature. And we need a voice that can say, no, we are, we are better together. We are stronger together. Iron, iron swords break steel, which is, which is, which is, an alloy of lots of different kinds of metals bends and survives and is stronger. Um, I, I believe in, 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 in humanity. I believe in optimism. I believe that we can be better than we think we are. And uh, if that lesson is getting across along with the, the writing techniques, then I'm a happy guy. Fantastic. And you, you mentioned the pandemic, which obviously is the permanent elephant in the room these days. Um, how, how has that affected your work? Cause you obviously upended, television production and publishing went upside down in 2020 for a while. Has it um, impacted on what you're doing much? Uh, it did. Um, as I took most of um, 2019 away from a lot of television production because I wanted to write my novel, Together We Will Go, thinking that well, in 2020, I'll make up the lost income that I lost from not working in those areas. <laughs> this, this did not exactly work out. Um, 
the town was shut down, and so I and I didn't leave the house. I I was younger in my my twenties and thirties. <clears throat> I got pneumonia and bronchial infections every year to the point where it scarred my lungs very badly. And my doctor said, "Look, if you get it, you're done. That's as simple as that." So I pulled the drawbridge up um, May probably March tenth. And did not walk out again until um, I got my first vaccination. Uh, I mean, I live alone. I, I'm, I see I didn't walk. I mean, I didn't go further than the mailbox for a year. But I took that time to write. Uh, number Some writers that I know, you know, weren't able to focus on writing. They were, they were too busy wondering what's going to happen. But I'm, I'm very good at self-denial. Uh, so I worked on my next novel, which I'm giving to Simon Schuster this we gave to them last week, uh, much of other projects. And the good thing now coming out into this year is that those projects that I was working on and creating during the pandemic are now starting to bear fruit. And there's a lot, like a lot, a lot going on, but that's just, that's the career stuff to watch the pandemic unfold on an emotional scale. Uh, was just horrific because of the denial of the science and the denial of um, common sense and using it for political purposes by a corrupt president. Um, I was angry a lot, and but, but also I was tuned in a lot to how the virus worked, and I was trying to get accurate information as early as January uh, because I have, I have friends who work at the, like friends with contacts I know who work at the CDC and elsewhere, epidemiologists who I've worked with over the years on the projects, and they were able to feed me good information that I passed on to the folks on Twitter. You've spoken to a lot of writers over the last year and a bit, and yeah, it's affected everyone in such different ways as well. I think everyone is well. Hopefully, there's you know hope on the horizon, as you were saying about your work. You know, there's 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 changes happening which will hopefully leave us in a better place a year from now. I think so. And, and, and tellingly, um, I got a call from a um, producer recently who said, you know, we're getting calls from every actor in town, every major studio in town, saying, do you have anything positive or uplifting or optimistic? Because that's what people want right now. And so much of the last, of the television, probably of movie production for the last year or so has been, you know, five people go into the cabin in the woods and find something terrible. You know, that, that formula was done over and over and over again. And because it's easy to be dystopian, it's easy to be dark and depressing. Being hopeful without being cliche is hard, but now the emphasis in in LA is everyone's looking for hopeful stories, stories that said that are optimistic about the human race and our chances. So, I think that's we're going, we're going to only going to see the real ramifications of what happened over the last year, starting about now. Because think about the call post traumatic stress for a reason. The post meaning after the fact. When you're in the process of the of the traumatic situation, there isn't time to process the emotions that happens afterward, hence post. Meaning while you're being chased by the bear, there isn't time to, to process the emotion of being chased by the bear. You're just trying to get away from the freaking bear. But when you finally get clear and you can process, oh my God, look what almost happened, that's when you process the stress. So now that we're hitting a point where vaccines are out there and we're starting to get this thing under control, I think you're going to be start seeing people really assessing where we are now in their own lives. That's why I think you're seeing more people saying no to, to, to crap paying jobs, 
they, they came within inches of, of dying or seeing those around them die. So why should I go back and work for this person who I don't like for crap money? I, I've been, I think that we're going to see a, a return to people, you know, being more involved in how they, in, 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 in fashion and in, in, in clothes um, in terms of, I spent the last year wearing sweatpants and sweatshirts <laughs> and n- nobody wants to go outside looking like they're still inside. I think it's, there's going to be real a real questioning going on of us as a people. What do we stand for? What do we believe? And what are we here for? And nothing makes you question your place in the universe quite like the possibility of not being there anymore. Um, so I, I have great hopes that, that you know the Renaissance was preceded by the you know the Dark Ages, by the Big Death, or the Black Plague. Um, I think that we're going to see something positive coming out of this as a result. Yeah, let's let's definitely go with that reading of it for sure um so becoming a writer staying a writer is out at the start of june definitely recommend people check it out and then together we will go um when, when can people expect that that comes out july 6th great so yeah you've got a, a busy second half of the year coming up yeah i got a movie going to production looks like um for next year i'm writing a, um, a mini series right now i'm writing a pilot for another series on top of that just turned in the new novel the simon schuster that's it's going to be a good year. It's going to be a good year. And I'm, I'm glad that we made it out of the last crap year. And I see optimism. I see a, a sunrise on the horizon. Fantastic. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time today. I was going to say this morning, but I suppose it is the morning for you, technically. Yes. You're more than welcome. Yes. Well, thank you again uh, for all that insight. That was, that was fantastic. And have a lovely weekend. You too. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening and thanks to J. Michael Straczynski. Becoming a writer, staying a writer is out now. If you have questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can check out our Facebook page or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please consider making a donation by heading over to the website and clicking on the Support Us link. Please do rate, review and subscribe or follow the podcast because it does help other people to find it and also makes us feel warm and cosy. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm